Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing to work our way through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 33. Last week we saw where Jesus was trying to make his defense on why the disciples' violation of the Sabbath with plucking the heads off of the grain in the fields was okay in this situation. He gave two examples. The first example was with David uh, getting the bread from the the temple whenever that he was in need. And then we also saw that the, the priests within the temple themselves violate the, the Sabbath in their services to God and to the people. We had this kind of equation set out where going from the light to the heavy in this situation where we see that temple service is greater than the Sabbath for the priest. We see that human need was greater than the temple and David. And then to put those things together in Jesus's defense, human need is greater than the Sabbath. And that was further solidified when Jesus said that something is greater than the temple is here and that uh, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and you can take that to be Jesus, or you can take that to be humanity, but the the truth of the matter is that God created Sabbath for man's good. He wants that for us. He wants us to enter into that rest, and he also wants us to promote good, promote allowing others to experience Sabbath in their lives through alleviating suffering, through yeah. promoting compassion and mercy and sacrifice for others good um and that's kind of the heart of what jesus was trying to get the pharisees to see and we left off with another story about the sabbath on the sabbath with um, a man with a withered hand within the synagogue and the pharisees asking him is it lawful to heal on the sabbath and we left off on a cliffhanger of whether jesus was going to heal him or not yeah, this poor guy. We left him an entire week with his hand still withered there. <laughs> we got to make this right. Shall we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. We're looking at Matthew chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, Mark chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, and Luke chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Uh, let's go ahead and just read from Mark. He says this, And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and he said to the man stretch out your hand he stretched it out and his hand was restored the pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the herodians against him how to destroy him Woo! this is a soap opera if i've ever seen one yeah <laughs> so jesus Check this out, Samuel. Jesus is angry. And if he's a sinless Messiah, what are we saying? This type of anger can't be a sin. It's not a sin. Uh, Just as a, you know, sort of a go-along passage, uh, maybe you could read for me uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Yeah. Apparently... 
there is a type of anger. You can have anger and not sin. But let's just be uh, honest, shall we, Samuel? Being angry without sinning, it's a little bit of a tricky business, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's hard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think for most of us, it's something we have to be very, very careful about. We, we need to hold on to those ideas of, you know, putting away anger and being slow to anger. But at the same time, recognizing we can be angry and especially the, the things that we understand like at injustice or at sin or at hard hearts, stuff like that. But he wasn't just angry. He was also grieved. See, here he was. Samuel, he's given them such great teaching, such great example, helping them to see the deep inner meaning and purpose of the law instead of just the letter. But they don't want to hear it. They want the law to be about that detailed letter. In some sense, I think they kind of wanted to rule over and control men instead of loving and caring for them putting a burden on them instead of lifting them up. And the truth is, they weren't blind. They were willfully and stubbornly refusing to see. And so, I would say if you're feeling a little bit angry or grieved or whatever at these men, also, you know what? Good for you. Just be careful. Yeah. Again, we see Jesus heal with just words. He didn't even say, like, be healed or whatever. He's just like, stretch out your hand. But it's just words. Fabulous miracle. Foretaste of the kingdom. Endorsement from God, right? And, side note, no mention of belief or faith or anything. Just kind of happens. Just saying. Hmm. But for these Pharisees, this should have been enough. It should have been enough to show that he was from God. It's kind of a God endorsement. His words were true. But they refuse to see it. It may, and we'll see this later in the Gospels, it may have led some of them to even consider whether the power that he is demonstrating really even is from God or possibly somewhere else. But we'll talk more about that later. Uh, But anyway, these Pharisees, they're mad. They want this guy gone. Uh, They think that he's, you know what? Okay, again, let's try to be fair to them. They think that he's ruining everything. In their minds, they think that they're doing the right thing in demanding righteousness from Israel, for Israel. They think that this is going to somehow encourage God to act on their behalf, like he has done so many times in the past. So they're seeing this Jesus guy and they're going... He's lowering the bar. He's ruining our chances. And so, again, you can see in this, and I'm not, I'm not really defending them. I'm just, you gotta, you gotta have some sort of empathy for their position. They had good intentions. Plus, Sabbath is super, super important. All through the scriptures, it's important to God. It's important to Israel. It comes up over and over and over and over. So if he's breaking the Sabbath without just cause, well, then this is a big, big deal. He couldn't be the Messiah. And so 
you know, again, Christians, you're really hurting yourselves when you when you're saying that he's a Sabbath breaker. It's it's more complex than that. It's more nuanced than that. And ultimately, you have to recognize he's not a Sabbath breaker. Mm-hmm. And then the craziest thing of all, Samuel, uh, Samuel, the Pharisees, they're teaming up with the Herodians. That is wild. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, just to be clear, who are the Herodians? They're the ones with the allegiance to, uh, like, Herod Antipas. And it's kind of crazy because they have nothing in common. How did the Herodians feel about Rome, Samuel? Oh, they were soaked in Roman culture. Yeah, it was great. But the Pharisees hated Rome. The Herodians, uh, okay, so we have to kind of like talk about it historically. You had Alexander the Great and, you know, the Greeks and then the Romans and all this, uh, this idea of Hellenism. How did Herodians feel about Hellenism? Uh, They loved it. They thought that, you know, life and reality and culture was focused on humanity. They were the center of it all. Yeah, and sewers and clean water and, (laughs) I mean, it's it's good things. Yeah. But the Pharisees shunned all of that the herodians how did they feel about the law i don't think they really cared (laughs) right yeah but the pharisees they loved it these guys were natural enemies they didn't agree on anything and yet they find a common enemy in jesus the enemy of my enemy is my friend see jesus he he was going to mess up their rule and their power and as we've seen before they want to kill the Sabbath breaker. Now, remember, uh, just, I don't know, maybe thinking of it practically, Jesus is associated with John the Baptist. And we know that John the Baptist has been arrested. So, in some sense, maybe they're trying to, you know, catch those coattails, see if they can get Jesus arrested, possibly even killed in the same way. Just going to try and use this stuff against him, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you say that, I mean, you use that, illustration the enemy of my enemy is my friend have we had any up to this point any interactions with the herodians and jesus um i guess i'm trying to think of where the herodians stance would be if they have heard about what jesus has been doing like how would they be treating his teachings his miracles that kind of thing well, I would have to guess from their perspective, the only thing that they're really thinking about and caring about is their rule. I mean, that was the big thing for them. They they were the ones that had all the power. They were the ones, you know, like the Sadducees. And so all they cared about is, okay, number one, are you are you causing trouble so that Rome is going to somehow think we're not doing a good job and then we're going to be in trouble? Or even worse... Do you actually represent some sort of real challenge to our rule? And I, I just, I think they saw the whole world through that. Mm-hmm. They liked the world the way it was, you know, whatever. So at this point, I mean, we've seen Jesus gathering a lot of crowds and things, uh, and you know he's getting attention here and there, but apparently it's not enough yet that the Herodians are taking action against it, and so the Pharisees, I guess, are trying to team up and maybe get them on board with that. Okay. Yeah, so this is what they're doing, and I mean, you know, you'd have to think they were trying to do this in secret behind Jesus' back, but let's go to the next verses and see what happens. Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 and 16, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. 
I think we'll just read everything here because Matthew's really short. Matthew, he just, he just says this, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. Okay, now Mark gives us a lot longer version, so let's see what he says. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them, not to make him known. Okay. Uh, Number one, it says that Jesus is aware of this, and we've seen this before. Jesus seems to have, whether, whether it's through his own ability or this is something that has come along with the Holy Spirit that is on him, in him, uh, however you see that, Jesus is aware of what's going on in the minds of these Pharisees. He knows they're team, teaming up with the Herodians to destroy him. And, you know, I mean, it's very godlike that this, this whole thing of God knowing what's going on in man, uh, just, I don't know, this is one of my favorite examples. Samuel, can you read from Genesis chapter 6, verse 5? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yeah, and I think we've mentioned this idea of uh, the, the Bible, the writers, they they play on this word saw. So here's another example where God saw something. And of course, when he sees, he's seeing correctly. But he sees the wickedness of man. And look, at this? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart. Buddy, that's seeing deep down inside a man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's seeing some stuff. And so we see this like father, like son. We see it in Jesus. But anyway, he withdraws from there. Uh, he continues trying to avoid, I don't know, being too noticed, <laughs> whatever. Um, but again, another pattern. Notice that he, he again retreats to the sea. It's a bit of a, uh, a repeat. He keeps going back there. But the great crowds, I don't know, maybe we could say they're less noticeable out by the sea than they would be in the towns or the cities. And then also notice that the great crowds are distinguished from his disciples. He withdrew with his disciples. The great crowd followed. Side note, this whole thing about, you know, trying to not get too noticed, not trying to whatever. uh, There was also a zealot movement at this time. And so Jesus also didn't want to get drawn into that. That would have been, I think, bad for his plan, his story, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, So know that that's there. But anyway, you got these crowds. They continue to follow him wherever he goes. 
And I'm going to say, I wonder about the motivation. I think that their main motivation here, the crowds, is the healing, the uh, maybe even the exorcism or whatever, the, that stuff. And it's understandable, right? I mean, if, if you really knew that there was really a guy walking around healing people and you had something wrong with you, wouldn't you go? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it's kind of disappointing, you know, given, given the whole picture. So for the Jews, it, it's, like, it's like they want that kingdom life because the kingdom life, you know, is no more sickness, you know, this, that, whatever. But the question that remains is, do they really want to do what it takes to be a part of that kingdom life? Because what's the gospel message, Samuel? Repent, because the kingdom is here. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, you've got to repent to, to go after that kingdom. But I don't know. I don't think the crowd was just Jews anymore. Remember, when, when Mark is telling this story, he's talking about Idumea. That's Edom to the south. He's talking about beyond the Jordan. That would be Perea out in the east. He's talking about Tyre and Sidon or Sidon. These are Phoenician cities to the north and the west. Uh-oh. Did you pick up on that? The four corners, the points of the compass? Huh. Yeah. Mark's trying to show you they're coming from everywhere. I mean, okay, who knows what their view of the whole earth is, but it would be kind of a way of saying they're coming from the whole earth. But these, these places that he names specifically, well, they're primarily not Jewish. The people coming from there may understand little or nothing about the kingdom or Judaism or, or any of that. They just want the healing. So these are big crowds. Now, uh, what's another thing? Up to this point, we've seen Jesus heal by words, uh, by touching. And, uh, you know, that was all kind of, I don't know, personal, intimate, however you want to look at that. Now, people are just touching him. It's, it's, it's gone from being this very personal sort of thing to something that is, uh, I don't know, maybe more like spectacle. It's more about what he can do than it is about who he is. Well, did we not just talk about this, Samuel? Yeah. Takes us right back to the garden. Mm-hmm. And even you, in a, an earlier episode, you told us about uh, uh, when Adam, uh, when he was naming uh, the woman, what did, what did yep. he call her? Oh, he called her Eve, which has Hebraic meanings of being like mother of all creation. Like that's what she can do. But her original woman name that God told him to give her was who she was. She was from man, a part yeah. of man. Yeah. It's so anyway, you see those little hints coming through there. I thought that was kind of cool. But back to the story. In fact, these people rushing around, trying to touch him, trying to get healed, it gets so bad that Jesus has to come up with this contingency plan, right? Hey, guys, get a boat ready. These people are going to crush me, right? And I don't know if you know this, but this was actually the original inspiration for, you know, those little machines where you have to walk in and take a number? (laughs) You don't believe me, do you? I'm making this up. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, they were they were gathering around, crushing in. He did more than he could handle. But then we also see, again, I know it sounds like we're repeating, but it's not our fault. This is what's written here. 
they, he ordered them not to make him known. Jesus is still trying to keep things quiet. And I mean, again, it's crazy. You've got these crowds. You've got these miracles. Everything is awesome, but it's impeding the real mission, the message about the kingdom. You got the demons, they're still trying to out him as the son of God. And Matthew makes it sound like, you know, he's trying to tell the people, the ones who are being healed or whatever, he's trying to tell them not to make it known. Mark is less clear. It kind of looks like he's ordering the demons not to tell, but you know, you could read it. It could be the people or both or whatever. And you know, that's that whole story of pronouns, you know, oh, pronouns, how do I hate thee? Let me count the ways. They mess so many things up. It's so hard to read. But, of course, reading without pronouns is hard, too. Anyway, we just got to put ourselves in the people's shoes. Imagine, here's, here you go, Samuel. This is the way I was thinking of it when I was reading this. I know you don't have a little one yet, but let's pretend you do. Imagine it's the first, first day of school, and you give your kid this fully functional Buzz Lightyear suit, fully functional weapon system, the whole thing, and it's his back-to-school gift, and then you tell him, hey, buddy, you can't tell anybody about this. <laughs> What's going to happen, Samuel? Yeah, fat chance it's going <laughs> to yeah. go, go everywhere. <laughs> He's going to tell everybody. You can't blame him. And so it's like this weird... um uh, dual thing that you see in the story. On one hand, it's all very serious. You know, you've got the the miracles, the spectacle kind of getting in the way of the the message and all of that. And yet, at the same time, it's almost comical because seriously, God, seriously, Jesus, do, do you think by telling these people to keep it to themselves and not tell someone that they're really going to do it? It's like a little kid with a toy and you can't tell. It's crazy. But whatever, that's what we got. Where does he go next? Oh, oh, this is really good. You ready, Samuel? Oh, yeah. Seatbelt on. Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Wow. Where'd all these Gentiles come from? Yeah. What's going on here, Samuel? Well, remember, we just showed you. Mark told us about the four points of the compass. He named all these places. They were, they were non-Jewish, at least primarily, all this stuff. What is Matthew getting at? Well, so so Mark gives us the picture, and Matthew's the one that's trying to relate it back to Scripture, because, you know, that's kind of his thing. Where this comes from is Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Now, it's not an exact match, 
And, I mean, to be honest, these quotes in the New Testament rarely are. But the question would be, well, why? So let's say it again. We've talked about some of these things. Why is Matthew quoting and it's not an exact match? Well, maybe it had something to do with his memory. Maybe that was just the way he remembered it. Or maybe it has something to do with uh, the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament translated into Greek. Some things got, you know, kind of a different, they seemed a little different in there. Maybe that's what Matthew had handy or, or memorized or whatever. Or maybe Matthew's purposely mixing it up just a little bit because this is part of his storytelling agenda, right? There's all kinds of reasons we don't know. The point is, Matthew's trying to out uh, highlight what I think are three very important things. The first one may seem a little bit obvious. Jesus is the Messiah. That's the whole relating it to Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. He's the servant. He's the Messiah. Okay. Number two, Messiah is for Israel. Nobody's questioning that, I don't think, in Matthew's day. But he's also for all of the nations. That would be the Gentiles. This is a big deal. And then number three, Jesus is the suffering Messiah, the one that that would be called son of Joseph. Now, just think about this. Matthew's writing many years after Jesus's death, resurrection, etc., all that. So he's kind of looking back and he's telling you what and who this Jesus is, what he's about. And so this servant of the Lord thing that we see in Isaiah, this is, this is really important, Samuel, and you know we've talked about it in, in more than one place. This servant of the Lord is sometimes, very clearly, the Messiah. It's like it's talking about a single guy, whatever. But at other times, you read, and it seems like it's very clearly not a single guy, but the whole nation of Israel. And what this does is, is we have to kind of go along with Isaiah. What is it that Isaiah is doing? What's he trying to tell us? This servant of the Lord, it is Israel. And yet it is one who is Israel, who comes from Israel. And both of them together are are pivotal in, in all of human history and future, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. Somehow, it's like Jesus is Israel, and Jesus is wrapped up in Israel, and Israel is wrapped up in Jesus, and we need to see the servant of the Lord that way. Hmm. Anyway, three points. Jesus is Messiah, Messiah is for Israel and all nations, and Jesus' appearance here as Messiah is the suffering Messiah. So let's start breaking that down. Uh, real quickly, he mentions, uh, with whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit on him. Samuel, what does that remind us of? Sounds like when he got baptized and voice of God declared from the heavens, something very similar to that statement. Oh, yeah, it's exactly right. Baptism in the Jordan. And then it says uh, that he's going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. All along Israel's story, Israel's purpose, why did God separate them out for himself? They were the medium. They were the conduit. Justice is in store for all nations and all peoples. And I guess we should at least say it out loud. When we talk about justice, this could be both positive and negative judgment. Oh, and here's another part. This is kind of good. This whole bit about 
He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Bruised reed won't break. Smoldering, uh, smoldering wick won't quench. All of that. In a sense, this all relates to the whole, you know, let's keep everything quiet motif that we've been seeing over and over and over. But more importantly, this is the way of the Messiah. Well, at least in this instance, it's the first Messiah, the suffering Messiah. We see that Jesus is meek. He avoids unnecessary confrontation. He avoids fame. He is gentle. He is compassionate. He is vulnerable. He is fragile. And yet, he's all of these things from a place of strength, not weakness. He was for the vulnerable and fragile, right? He, I mean, he was that, but he was also for them. Um, and so, as his disciples, we we have to imitate all of this. We have to be quiet and humble and yet firm in standing for the truth, walking in truth. It is a high, high calling. I, mm-hmm. I can't help thinking about the people that say that Christianity is a crutch. It's like, <laughs> what is you, ignorant? <laughs> it's like this is a high high calling yeah death to yourself yeah it's a big deal now this whole bruised reed and smoldering wick thing this is really interesting i think that it's really easy to take this two completely different ways i mean when he says let's read it a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Well, wait a second. Is the bruised reed and the smoldering wick, is that Jesus? Or is it the people he's bringing justice to? I mean, is the answer yes? Or is it both? Or is it take your pick? I mean, think about it. The bruised reed that will not break. Okay, we could definitely see Jesus in that. But we can also see, but if there is one who is a bruised reed, Jesus will not break them. Similarly, a smoldering wick that will not be quenched. Okay, we see that in Messiah. Died, resurrected, all that. But could it be if there is one who is a smoldering wick, Messiah will not quench him. He's bringing justice. You can take it both ways. And I don't care which way you take it. I think they're both awesome. Yeah. All right, another point. What do we got here? Jews, how do I say this? So so we are talking about, you know, two messiahs. This is the first one, Messiah, son of Joseph, right? If you were to go around 2021, uh, whatever, you find some Jews, I think they're, they're going to be somewhat reluctant to talk about this idea of the two messiahs today. But back in Jesus's day, this wasn't, you know, a subject to be avoided. This was something that was, you know, kind of well-known, kind of popular. Now, the thing is, there's a lot of history between Judaism and Christianity. A lot of lot of water has gone under the bridge in the last couple thousand years. And so, I think that because, and I mean, let's just, let's just say, there has been a, a very serious and, and complete split between the two. 
And let's say that Christians have done some horrific things to Jews in the name of God. And I think we could even say that Christians have done a whole bunch of misunderstanding the scriptures and tried to put a whole bunch of things on the Jews that didn't belong there, taken a whole thing, a whole bunch of things away from the Jews that they had no right to take. And all of this has led to, hey, uh, we don't want any of our theories to somehow, you know, give an endorsement to this whole Jesus guy. And so that's why you see their reluctance to talk about this stuff today. But let's, let's talk about what that looked like again. So you got Messiah, son of Joseph. He's the suffering Messiah. And a Messiah, son of David, he's the conquering Messiah. Now, where did this come from? Well, if you get back there and really start reading through the scriptures, as the Jews did, and you start isolating those sections that you believe are really, really talking about this Messiah figure you're going to run into trouble because sometimes you're going to see them as an individual who is suffering and and ultimately even i think dying he's he's given in place for the people of Israel and these other places it's clearly not that it's like one who conquers like a political figure a king a ruler and The trouble was, you couldn't reconcile those two together. At least it was really, really difficult. And so it brought about this idea that, well, maybe there are two. And what's interesting is that we now see Jesus has come and we can, we can go, well, I don't, you know, if there's anything to what these guys are saying about two messiahs, his first appearance makes it look like he was one of those two. And his second appearance makes it look like he's going to be the other of those two. So there's this weird connection and agreement in there that you don't know is there. Just kind of a great thing. But what we're seeing here in Jesus, it's a great example of that suffering Messiah, victory over sin and death, uh, from which all suffering and injustice derive, by the way. And what it, the thing is, it's a victory over sin and death, and it's won through an undeserved suffering and death of a sinless one. This is a great plot twist. I, I don't care who you are. You can't write this movie. It's too good. Yeah. I feel like it's also a plot twist that the two messiahs that the Jews thought wound up being the same, like in the same person. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> I just love it. Oh, there's just too much goodness. Too much goodness. Um, so he, he ends up with this weird phrase. Verse 21, he says, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The thing is, if you go back and you read Isaiah, that's not what you're going to see there. You're going to see something more like the coastlands wait for his law. Mm-hmm. Okay, I get it. You know, sometimes things get lost in translation, but wow, those seem super different, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look, the word, the Hebrew word under there, the coastlands wait for his law, that's the word Torah. It's the whole Torah, right? There's such rich meaning here. Let me, let me show you what's going on in my head. So you remember way back at the first podcast, we, we had the word. That was that self-limiting agent of an infinite God in creation. And then you had the Torah, 
And we've talked about how that was that very same word that became manifest as human language, if you can imagine such a thing. It was, it was a way to see and know and understand this God and his will. But then you have Jesus. He is also that very same word that's now manifest in human form. An even better way to see and know and understand this God and his will. And all of them were sent on God's behalf. And and we would say representing him. That is, they are in his name. So he is the hope for all nations. That would be the Gentiles. He is the hope for Israel, both of them alongside one another. The Torah is also our hope. How are we tying these things together? Humans living according to God's Torah, according to God's will, and I'm just going to say it, these loving instructions that were given to man by a loving God so that we might know how to live man to man and man to God. This is true justice. Okay, ultimately, the picture that we need to get in our head, that we need to see and understand, ultimately God is going to rule all of creation by or through his Torah. How do I know this? Because it's going to be written on our hearts and on our minds. That is the new covenant. So when it says, in his name, the Gentiles will hope, and the coastlands wait for his law, what we see in this is the ultimate solution. The big end of the story is the Torah, the word, all of it manifests in humans, in the resurrection. And we, of course, have some access to it now, and our pursuit of Torah, our understanding of Torah, our loyalty and faithfulness to him by trying to walk out that Torah, I mean, that's us in the kingdom, in the new covenant now, even though its fulfillment is not yet. I mean, how cool is all of that? Yeah, it's awesome. And I love the the Isaiah version of the coastlands wait for his law because it reminds me of there's two different versions of where this statement is said but it's in isaiah chapter 2 and it's also in micah chapter 4 um where god is saying through the prophet um let's see in isaiah chapter 2 starting in verse 3 it says and many peoples will come and say come this is like looking forward to that day when, you know, the kingdom and the world to come, when the things are going to be made right. Uh, it says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Mm, and then this yeah. phrase in particular, For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations. Uh, and then in the Micah version, this is Micah chapter 4, uh, and it's verses 2 through 4. Like after he says that it's going to go to the nations, 
um, I just love it that it says that after that that word goes out from Zion, it says that uh, verse three, nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So it's like it gives you that result, that end result, that effect of the the word going out and then going into the hearts of all peoples and all nations that there will be no more contention, no more war. There'll be unity between all peoples. That's just it's a really good picture. Oh, yeah. It's it's so hard because we live in a world where people try to minimize or just eliminate Old Testament or law or whatever. And again, I, I say it out loud because I have to. Nobody is saying that we are somehow earning salvation. This is all this, this comes after. It's already been done. This is part of our faithful and loyal living toward him. But it's like this gift. It's like if somebody gave you a, a lotto card that was worth, I don't know, $500 billion or $1,000 trillion. I'll pick any number you want. And you had a week to turn it in and collect, and you just kind of don't. That's what the Torah is. You know, we need, to, we need to recognize it for the value and gift that it is and pursue it appropriately. As befits one who is redeemed. That's all. Yeah. Ah, it's good stuff. Well, Samuel, I mean, we've got time. This this is kind of crazy. This feels like, um, you know how when you're watching a, a show or a movie or reading a book or something, it feels like, whoa, um, did we not just take a really hard turn right there? What happened? I don't even know where we're at. That's kind of what's going to go on here, but let's, let's go through it and... Uh, uh, show them what we got. Okay. Because, I don't know, this is interesting and fun. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. And Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. I'm going to go ahead and read from Mark. I think it gives the most detail. So here we go. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed Twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, I don't even know what that is, Boanerges, something? (laughs) (laughs) And then he helps us. That is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Kind of cool. So at some point, Jesus goes up on a mountain. And uh, I mean, according to the text, it's not just a mountain. It's the mountain. And, you know, which one is that? I don't know. It kind of had to be some uh, something familiar, maybe uh, to the people of the region, or maybe Jesus has gone up there often, or I, I don't even know. Uh, we can't be certain, but um, we know that it's not something like, you know, Mount Zion. It's not that mountain. It's something around where they're at. But I guess maybe why is it important? Because this is going to relate to the Sermon on the Mount mm. that's coming up. 
And so it's that mountain, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, we do know this. Jesus went up there to pray. And he prayed all night. I, I'm just going to be honest. I don't know if I could do it. I'm a pumpkin head. <laughs> 10 o'clock at night, I'm ready. I'm out, right? But look at what he does. It seems that God and Jesus, they're spending all night together working through their options. And ultimately, they're deciding on what we know of as, you know, the twelve. But they, they're working it out. They needed just the right mix for their plan. This is in the Luke version, right? What do you mean? Uh, that he prayed all night. Oh, uh, yes. I'm sorry. I see what you're saying. Yes. That comes from the Luke text. I should have pointed that out. Good eye. Yeah. But think about this, though. We've been talking about all these things, and now all of a sudden, he's choosing the 12. How many disciples did you think he had up to this point? I mean, I know the number 70 floats around a lot, too. Right. But the only thing they've told us about is like four or five of them. Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden, it must have been a much bigger number. I mean, okay, for example, if there were 13, how bad would that have been to pick 12? <laughs> I mean, that's just me. Really? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So there had to be some big number. Um, and Of all of these, they were disciples. They had to be ones who were consistent, sincere followers. And who knows, all by themselves, they may even have looked a little bit crowd-like. But they weren't the crowds that we've been talking about, right? There's still the distinction. You've got the disciples and you've got the crowds. So anyway, he chooses 12. Samuel, does that number sound familiar to you? I mean, from what I know previously of the disciple, oh, uh, yeah, about the 12 tribes of Israel. There you go. There's one. The number 12, 12 tribes. How about when he spent the, sent the spies into the land? <laughs> How many were there? I, I'm assuming 12. Yeah, good guess. <laughs> and from where did Moses choose those 12? Uh, wasn't, was he on a mountain? One from each tribe oh, is what okay. we were looking for. Oh! Darn it. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, so, I mean, you kind of see the connections here. Moses chooses 12, one from each tribe. Jesus chooses 12. We don't really know that there's one from each tribe, but you get the, you know, right? You see the connections. Uh, but he, he's choosing these 12. He's separating them out for some sort of elevated service in this mission. And this whole idea of, of you know, having a, a tight inner group, if you will, that's very similar to something that the Pharisees did. So you see another Pharisee connection there. And then I just like to relate this even to like our modern culture. Notice that, you know, not everyone got to be a starter on the team, if you will. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or, or you could say not everyone gets a trophy or, or whatever. You see Jesus is separating out, call it an elite group or first among peers or however you want to say it. These guys get to go from being just students or disciples to actually being legal agents, apostles. In some sense, they are to Jesus what Jesus is to God. God is here. I'm sorry. Jesus is here in God's name doing 
God's work, Jesus is sending out the apostles in his name to do his work. They were, on one hand, to be with him closer than anyone else, and they were also to be sent out to preach, to cast out, to heal. They go in his name. Uh, the Jewish word, and, and just so you know, Jesus isn't making this stuff up. Uh, the, in, Ju- in Judaism, they would, uh, they, Jewish culture, they would have been called the shlechim, the sent ones. They were, each of them individually, a shaliach, one who is sent, an emissary, a legal agent, right? Uh, in the Talmud, it says that a man's shaliach is like the man himself. It's just a common cultural thing. Got to see that picture. Yeah. Oh, here's another one. Man, I'm sorry. I get excited about this stuff. (laughs) Check this out. Think about where we are in the story. They are uniquely and distinctly given power to cast out demons, to heal disease and affliction. This is different, separate from all of the other disciples. Do you see that? I mean, think about all of us, the body of Christ. All of us have, you know, call it our role or our gifts or whatever. Some are different than others. You see it right there in the disciples of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And notice, this is way before Pentecost. The thing that we think of in Acts, you know, when we think about, oh, the Holy Spirit came, it was given to, to right? This is way before that. Well, where did this power come from? I mean, don't you think it had to be the Holy Spirit on them? Mm -hmm. So uh, I I think that this is just important that we see this. This is way early in the story, and they are given power, and only some of them. This is important. We'll talk more about it later. Now, why? Why were they given this power, Samuel? Uh, They should probably have a way to endorse the message that of the one that they're emulating so closely to exactly exactly what we've seen in jesus himself they're going to go out and they're going to preach what are they going to preach samuel repent because the kingdom of god is at hand exactly at least we assume sometimes it doesn't say but other places it does it says that so They're going to go out and say that, and when they say it, just like Jesus offered proof or endorsement from God through these things, they're going to be able to do the exact same thing, right? If they're going to go around saying stuff like, Jesus is the king of the world, you know, not that dude on the front of the ship. If they're going to say it, they got to have a little bit of proof so that people will actually listen. Uh, It says that he gave them authority, and this authority, it's like dominion and power. And what's kind of crazy, at least at least this Greek word, and you know, you sort of relate it back to the Hebrew words, all this stuff, it talks about like dominion and power even over empires. So think about it. We saw Satan during the temptations. What did he offer to Jesus? All the kingdoms of the world. Yeah. And we could say empires, or that makes one giant empire. Well, this may even suggest authority over all of that. So it's interesting that Jesus gave them authority, especially that tidbit about being able to cast out demons. But then I don't want to spoil it, but there's stories later on the Gospels where the disciples are really struggling to be able to do that. And it's like, are they? Yeah. 
are they enacting on that authority that's been given to them or are they, is there a lack of trust going on it's just interesting that we're going to see that struggle with that authority later on yeah well yeah it might even add another question to the whole belief thing uh belief faith thing mm-hmm. right where what about the guy who's like he's supposed to be acting with the authority and power <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right? I, I, the whole thing is, it, it's, it's, it's a complex, complex question. But hey, listen, uh, we've only got a few minutes, and I would like to try to get to a brief review of the 12. Okay. So I am going to rapid fire my way through it, okay? And, and you'll see some of them, it's got like, we got some duplicate names in the list. So, and also some people, their names get changed, or it's kind of like nicknames or whatever. This is all very understandable. Um. And it, it kind of adds an endearing quality to the names, you know, whatever. In fact, Daniel Lancaster, you know, I mentioned him. He's one of my faves. He takes, you know, some information from varying sources and he kind of modernizes things a little bit for fun. And he comes up with names like The Rock, Johnny Thunder, Big Jim and Little Jim, <laughs> The Twin, Babyface, you know, Simon the Terrorist and Jude the Knife, right? And, and it's, I mean, it's fun. But let's let's go through them, and I'm going to try to give you a picture of who each of these guys is, okay? Mm-hmm. All right. Peter. Simon, called Peter. He's the preeminent disciple. He was a fisherman from Bethsaida. He lived in Capernaum. He was Andrew's brother. He was fishing partners with James and John, and he's the source behind Mark's gospel. This would be the rock. And then you have Andrew. He's Peter's brother. He's a fisherman from Bethsaida, lived in Capernaum, disciple of John the Baptist, and he's fishing partners with James and John. Okay, now you have James, the son of Zebedee, and uh, also one of the sons of Thunder, and he's John's brother. For whatever reason, it's James. He should be called Jacob in English. I don't know why we do that. He's from Bethsaida, and he is believed to have had a wife and kids, much like Peter. Uh, fishing partners with Peter and Andrew, and this is a big deal. He is the first apostle to be martyred. Hmm. He's probably Big Jim. And then you got John, also a son of Zebedee, also a son of Thunder. Uh, He's James' brother, fishing partners with Peter and Andrew. He's probably the youngest. And we're going to say he's a teenager, uh, later teens, probably like your 17, 18, 19 range. And, at least according to church tradition, he's the only disciple to never have married. He's a gospel writer, the Gospel of John, obviously. And, for what it's worth, he was martyred, but it didn't take. He was boiled in oil, and he walked away from it. Dang. Yeah. And so, he might be Johnny Thunder. (laughs) And then we've got Philip from Bethsaida. He's probably a fisherman. And he's the guy that introduced Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, to Yeshua. And then we've got Bartholomew, or Nathaniel. Uh, he, Jesus saw him under a fig tree. And there's a, a, an interesting little Hebrew idiom. It's called tending the fig tree. And, and that is supposed to mean studying Torah. And so, the only reason I mention it is because some suggest that Bartholomew may have actually been a scribe or a rabbi, or at the very least, wished to be. Hmm. So anyway, there's Bartholomew. Uh, Thomas the Doubter, uh, this, uh, what we understand is that this might be a nickname, 
Toma in Aramaic means twin. Uh, Didymus in Greek, it means twin. And, and some think that his real name was Judas, and hence uh, we get uh, the, the, the name Thomas. Uh, they don't want to use the name Judas. Now, the thing is, we don't know who he's supposedly the twin of, but we've got some really, really old stories, right or wrong, I don't know, but they suggest that Thomas actually looked a lot like Jesus. And so they called him the twin, hmm. Toma, because he looked so much like Jesus. Maybe true, maybe false, don't know. Uh, but uh, we do have a lot of uh, tradition, history, whatever, that shows us that Thomas is the one that took the gospel to India. All right, we got Matthew, uh, also called Levi. He was the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus, possibly a Levite. Uh, he was a tax collector. And it's also possible that he wrote the first gospel, that he actually wrote it in Hebrew. It was kind of like a, a sayings gospel. He just wrote down a bunch of stuff that Jesus said. But later it got uh, sort of collected and edited and, and redone in Greek, and that's what we know as the gospel of Matthew. Maybe, don't know. But anyway, we have James, the son of Alphaeus, oh, so he's the brother of Matthew. He would be the guy that's referred to as James the Lesser. And he's the brother of Matthew, and he's not, you know, some other scripture, maybe he gets confused with Klopas, he's not, and maybe he's the guy that would be known as, you know, Little Jim. <laughs> and then we've got Thaddeus, also called Lebius, and Judas, the son of James. Now, this one is interesting, because he's possibly the son of James, the son of Alphaeus, which we just mentioned a moment ago. If that were true, then that might make him the youngest instead of John. But either way you look at it, um, there's also some confusion. He is not the brother of Jesus, whatever. And this one, I couldn't even figure out what, uh, what Daniel was talking about when he picked all these names. I think that this is the guy that he means to be called Babyface, if he was the son of James, right? Uh, anyway, we're almost done. You've got Simon the Zealot. And for whatever reason, oh, here's another one. Big translation problem. He is not a Gentile. He is not a Canaanite. He is Simon the Zealot. He is a Jew. Uh, and, you know, the nickname would be Simon the Terrorist. And then you've got Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. And this word Iscariot, nobody really knows what that means. It could mean something like from Kariot. Uh, it could mean uh, dagger man. It could mean false one or liar. Um, uh, the dagger man is probably the one that's going to be important for the nickname anyway. He was possibly a zealot. Uh, he acted as the treasurer for the group. And tradition, uh, forgive my language, but tradition says he was fat. He was a big boy. <laughs> but they called him Jude the Knife. But now nah, they didn't really. That's Daniel's nickname. But I'm just saying, uh, you get the idea. But think about this, Samuel. All 12 of these were Galileans. And they're all from such unexpected and ordinary backgrounds. You've got fishermen, stonemason, tax collectors, terrorists. I mean... It's kind of a motley crew. God and Jesus spent all night together working through this to pick these 12 guys. That alone speaks volumes. And this is such a perfect place to end this podcast. Just think of who he chose 
and for what they were chosen in, in this story. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. Anyway, yeah. that's all I got for today. Um, can, can I ask a really quick question? Even yeah. Though we're already <laughs> Do it. G- gone long. Um, you had said that John, son of Zebedee, son of Thunder, he was probably the youngest, and that you had yeah. said that youngest would have meant like, meant like later teenager. Yeah. I, I might be incorrect in this assumption, but I feel like over the past few years I have been deconstructing and reconstructing the age of mm-hmm. especially Jewish discipleship with a rabbi and a student and that more than likely in in a traditional sense the student would have been really young like you know either just hitting teenage years like 13 or just before it and so in these yeah like after the bar mitzvah or something right yeah yeah Yeah. so Mm -hmm. is this just a uncommon coincidence that um the traditionally most of these guys are treated as older than that or is there a chance that most of them are also around you know just out of bar mitzvah age yeah well there's a there's a lot of things going on here number one you think about uh tv movies or uh, whatever that kind of stuff a lot of times we see the the apostles and wow they seem quite a bit older you know like 30s or 40s even that kind of thing okay that's totally a bad picture uh there they were much younger and i would think the oldest of them probably still would have been in their 20s so so we're talking about young young men now back to your question your point uh, there's uh, i mean you could very well be right they may have been even younger than i'm portraying them here uh but there's a lot of disagreement about that it, it and and some do exactly like what you have said. They've got them super young, like they're all just teenagers. But I'm going to go with uh, just the 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 majority of what I have been exposed to. And again, we're acknowledging they're way younger than most people would give them credit for. But I'm going to be, you know, call it four or five, six late five, four or five or six years later than what uh, you're talking about, and. Who knows what's right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay. Uh, but you got to admit, they were a little bit outside the box. Jesus, who wasn't like even officially trained himself. Yeah. Picking out a bunch of guys while he's walking around to towns and by the sea and all this kind of stuff. And they don't have any training. And the, right. There's nothing official about any of this. Mm-hmm. So the whole story is way outside the box yeah. anyway. So, I, you know, it's hard to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to say right or wrong. Uh, I just know kind of things that sort of convince me or make sense to me or, you know, whatever. Sure. Yeah. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie most podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you're notified when our episodes release on Sundays at 7 PM so that you never miss an episode. We also would love it if you would rate and review our podcast so that you can let us know how this content is impacting your life. Our podcast is now on all platforms, so please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, we would love to hear from you, so please send any questions or comments you have 
to our email address, which is okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope and we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you soon.